Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am welcoming back Dr. Stephen McIntosh. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Sean. <laughs> Dr. Sean. You can just call me Sean. We go way back. So, um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, AMD or age-related macular degeneration. We're going to try give this, uh, you know, you know, like a good run here, but maybe a, call it a fifty thousand foot view. We won't dive too deep into the weeds, but just so that people listening to this, whether they be clinicians or patients or other members of the low vision community, uh, hopefully someone can take everybody can take something away from this. So, um, I was hoping to start off with you giving an explanation briefly of. Uh, what AMD is. So if you have a patient that you have to explain to uh, this patient that they they have AMD, um, how would you do that? How would you explain it? And maybe if you touch on the the various stages um, of the disease as well, uh, if you can take that and run with it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, you know, this is a really complex and, and uh, a disease that's not quite fully understood at this point in time, to say the least. So it without a, you know, a two hour presentation and a PowerPoint uh, behind me, I'll kind of just, like you said, give a sort of a cursory overview of it. Now I, uh, in terms of in the clinic, if, if I'm diagnosing somebody for the first time with, with uh, age-related macular degeneration or AMD, we can just call it AMD. Uh, I'll usually get out the eyeball model and uh, show them the anatomy and kind of go, it, well, with, with the name of this disease, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you look at the etymology of it, uh, age-related macular degeneration. So the first thing that that comes to mind is age-related. I usually don't want to say like, this is a disease that you're, is caused by your age. You know, people usually don't like to hear that off the bat about any, uh, same applies for presbyopia when you need bifocals. Yeah. Always try and say, ah, say that in a light way. Say it's wear and tear over the years or wear and tear over time. Uh, at the back of the eye due to oxidative damage uh, uh, that's not that your body can't keep up with or that the retina can't keep up with at the location of the macula. Now, what's the macula? Well, the macula is the spot at the back of the retina or the back of the eye at the retina that corresponds with central vision. There's a lot of photoreceptors packed in there and a lot of pigments called carotenoids also packed in there that work kind of as a natural sunscreen. So we know that there's damage at this area or there's aging or maybe premature or advanced aging at this area of the eye, which corresponds to central vision. So if there's degeneration of that area, it causes problems with the central vision. Central vision is what we use to recognize faces, to read, uh, now there's different stages. Usually when you're diagnosing, uh, or when someone presents with the first uh, signs of macular degeneration, it's usually the dry form. There's different stages of this disease and there those doesn't always progress in, in a linear way. There's grossly, you can say that there's dry macular degeneration and that differentiates from wet macular degeneration, which, which gets its name because it involves a bit of bleeding at the back of the eye from new blood vessels that grow into that area to try and you can use the analogy of trying to grow new blood vessels in there to bring more nutrients, more oxygen, try and help out that, uh, that tissue because the macula is one of the most metabolically active, metabolically demanding tissues in the, in the whole body. So at some point in the disease process of macular degeneration, genes can get upregulated that can, uh, can induce angiogenesis, new blood vessels growing into this tissue. Unfortunately they leak. And if they do, uh, then the retina becomes elevated and you have blood where there isn't supposed to be blood. It can block light and cause some uh, major differences to the retinal architecture. Anyway, that whole, that's just to say the bleeding get, it gives the, uh, the name wet. So we call this wet macular degeneration and that differentiates from the dry form, which usually, usually comes first. Um, this is accumulation of metabolic debris underneath the retina uh, that kind of represents products of oxidative stress. Uh, otherwise known as you can call it lipofusin. I say it's little bumps underneath the retina. We, we'll look at usually the, the fundus photo 
and I'll show the patient, here's the photo of your eye. Here's these little yellow spots under there. And these are deposit sites of metabolic byproducts products that were not excreted uh, out, of the, out of the body. Uh, and we'll look at the eyeball model again, like the plastic model, and I'll show them where that is in, in their, um, you know, in there, because it's kind of hard when you're looking at a flat screen to imagine where, where this is in the eye. So it, uh, that's usually how I'll, I'll explain it. I'll show the picture and I'll usually qualify that by saying like, you, you have the dry form or you have this form. And even within those, there's subcategories, there's mild, moderate, and advanced. Um, so it's a quite a bit of information to give, uh, after, uh, usually an eye exam that's already gone through the refraction, the dilated fundus exam, and there's sort of like two minutes left in the exam before the next patient starts. And then to explain all this and do it justice is actually really hard. As you can probably tell, like you kind of bounce around a little bit and then there's a huge emotional component too, you know, and like lots of questions, like, what does this mean? How, how am I going to, how's my vision going to change? And you have to, you know, console somebody too sometimes. So, um, sometimes it's necessary to bring people back on a second occasion and, uh, and to really get into it more, do more of a, a deep dive, because I think it is important, you know, to explain these diagnoses to patients because that can help them become more enrolled in the management and have a better understanding in a patient centric model. Of course, there's still some people who prefer the, um, the paternalistic, just like here, here's a, here's a thing that you have, here's what you do. And otherwise they're not going to worry much about it. I still believe a lot in uh, the, the education part of it though. Um, because, you know, when people are looking, one of the things is like with the metamorphopsia that can happen with ma macular degeneration, these little bumps underneath the retina change the positioning of, of the retina. And when we're born, our, our retina is wired up with our brain in a certain way so that we associate stimuli from certain photoreceptors with different positions in space. If you change the, the position of where those photoreceptors are in the retina, then our perception of the image associated with it changes. So if you're looking at a, a telephone pole up and down, sometimes it might have a crook in it or it's a little wavy. The same thing can happen with letters too. And it's very frustrating to people. Like they don't, they, like they let, well, would like to know in a lot of cases why that happens. <clears throat> so we, um, I, I, I try and explain that from an anatomical perspective and how the, um, how the brain is wired up and why that, why that happens. And I think it can be a little less frustrating and a little, maybe a bit easier to accept when there's a, a fuller understanding of it. Um, and now if, if people do advance to the wet form, there's a whole discussion about um, what genes are upregulated that cause the uh, new blood vessel growth and so on. But I usually don't get into that unless it's, unless we're at that point. Um, so usually we're, we're discussing the, the dry form and, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I would go about it. No, and that's, and that's fair. So I think there's a couple of points to touch on here. You know, you emphasize that as a clinician, you're going through the patient exam and then you have just a couple of minutes left at the end to maybe give the patient the diagnosis and to try to briefly explain it and what the next steps are. Like you don't have a lot of time to go through that. So, you know, in part, the reason we're doing this, well, this episode here, but the podcast in general is, is for that is for education, whether education for patients or for clinicians or other people, um, associated with the low vision community, information, sharing information that you don't have time to share, right? So, I mean, you, you quite, you, you can't sit and you know, I can sit in here and talk for an hour about this disease. You can't sit and do that with every patient. Uh, even though maybe you would love to, you simply, you know, can't, uh, can't make that happen. So I think that, um, you know, I think you gave a, a nice overview of it there and, uh, you know, diving into the genetics of it and stuff is, well, it's interesting. I'm going to guess that the majority of patients, what they want is a, you know, a Coles notes understanding of, okay, this is the disease. Um, this is how I can explain it or it's explained to me in a few sentences that I could then explain to somebody else when they ask me what it is. And here's what the next steps are, right? And it's trying to uh, get through to them with, um, you know, some stories or analogies because, you know, you did this with the, 
when we talked about dry eye back in an earlier episode and talking about the windshield wipers. And I think you put that in a way that patients can really grasp and understand. So I think that one of the challenges of clinicians is to try to do that with, uh, with any diagnosis, right? So that a patient says, oh, okay, now I understand that it's, and, you know, I can speak from my perspective as a patient who has a degenerative retinal condition that having an understanding of the disease makes you less afraid of it, right? And I think that's, uh, that's probably commonplace um, outside of ophthalmology as well. So I'm going on a bit of a tangent here too, but um, I just wanted to maybe touch on some of the risk factors. So what are some of the risk factors, whether they are uh, within your control or not, or within the control of the patient or not, uh, for developing AMD? And once somebody has been diagnosed with AMD, are those the same risk factors that um, are important in terms of you know the disease progression as well? Well, I'll, I'll give you my, my take on, on that. But I just, I really like what you just said too, because I have, uh, I'm giving a Coles notes kind of uh, version of it. And uh, there are studies and lots of resources. And I think what, what you mentioned is great. Like, you know, clinicians going through different avenues like this, like a podcast or YouTube and so on, explaining some different uh, diseases, because, you know, like we said, it takes a, quite a while to explain it all. And I, I like explaining it's interesting, you know, but uh, even, even then, a lot of times you explain it and it's just impossible to retain all the information in the clinic too, because you're sitting there, you just received some new diagnosis and so many things are going through your mind. And then you have this guy in front of you talking away about like, you know, lipofusin and drusen, reactive oxygen species and blah, blah, blah. So I agree, like using analogies is, uh, is great. And uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm hesitant because I don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. If I say like, yeah, there's little like landfill sites underneath your retina, you know, and they make bumps. <laughs> you have to take <laughs> supplements to help you excrete them faster, help, you know, decrease the rate at which they're growing, you know, and sometimes it, it does work for a, a better explanation. But the thing is, you know, all our patients are different too. And some people want the real scientific explanation. And some might be like highly insulted if you gave them that kind of like watered down version. But yeah, like, in terms of the question you just asked, so <laughs> the um, <laughs> the risk factors, well, in general, the um, modifiable risk factors would be smoking or exposure to secondhand smoke, having uh, obesity or experiencing obesity. So, and that might relate to a poor diet. And in those poor diets, there might be a lack of, uh, of carotenoid type of pigments which, uh, like I said, accumulate at the macula and kind of act as a sunscreen and a sun barrier. And as we know, the sun ages our tissues big time. So wearing sunglasses, but also eating these, uh, these pigments and helping to keep that, uh, keep that supply of pigments up to par in the eye. Where do, you get those pig- where do you get those pigments from? Just sorry to interject, but just so, where, what kind of foods would you get some of these pigments from? You get them from leafy green vegetables, from colorful fruit, berries. Um, you can also get them from marigold plants. That's where most uh, pharmaceutical companies get them from. But it's basically plant food, high foods that are colorful. If your plate is brown, we have a problem. <laughs> you know, it, there's got to be a lot of color, different colors on the plate. Uh, that's that's where we get these things from. Um, Oh, well, if you have cardiovascular disease, that's also a risk factor that you could kind of say is somewhat modifiable because we can, there's, there's medications for that. And so we always say, if you have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, work with your, with your doctor to manage that to the best of your ability. Also one that's a little bit obscure, but air pollution, air quality, uh, has, has a bit of a role that is technically a modifiable risk factor. So if you live close to an area or a city with really bad air quality, a lot of toxicants in the air, that could increase one's risk of developing macular degeneration in the future. All of this is, it's not overnight. Like these are cumulative things. It's uh, it's a toxicological concept of it's the dose that makes the poison, you know? Um, that's the That's the governing law of, 
pharmacology, toxicology, and it kind of applies here. You know, this is something that over our whole lifetime, these things accumulate. And in terms of the diet too, there's, um, it, it's hard, hard for us to really know the nutrients, nutrient doses that we should recommend in these cases. And so of course people say, well, how many, ba- how many goji berries, Dr. McIntosh, do you want me to <laughs> every day? Like, well, I don't know, honestly, like, <laughs> It has some lot. Yeah. Like, it doesn't know. really matter if you're going to wash it down with five or six beers. <laughs> so those are, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are um, modifiable ones, you know. And uh, like I said, like you know, any any nutrient can become toxic depending on the dose you take of it. So I don't want to say like you know, eat eat a ton of uh, goji berries every day or whatever. But now non-modifiable ones, you asked. Uh, that's of course age. We can't really make our uh, telomeres any longer yet. Um, being uh, Caucasian, uh, and there's there is some genetic component to it as well. Some genes that have been identified um, that are associated with a higher risk. And then after you were wondering after diagnosis, like uh, well, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but this, I'm, I'm, I mean, risk factors after diagnosis, obviously the non-modifiable ones. Yes, you just keep getting older and. Your genes are, are not changing, so I'm assuming that after you've been diagnosed, it's a lot of these right. okay. modifiable risk factors that would come into play as well, right? Okay, so um, right, exactly. Like before, we talk about treatments. Uh, it's the same. Yes, it's uh, you know, don't continue smoking. If you continue smoking, that's you know, you're you're sure you're going to worsen the situation. Uh, and same thing with secondhand smoke too. Uh, also attending eye exams, like not attending eye exams is a high risk factor of, of progression of disease. You know, if, if someone transitions to the wet stage, they need therapy, they need, they need uh, medicine on short order. And we, we would like to see people frequently with macular degeneration. We send them home with something called a Mac, uh, an Amsler grid, which is this kind of like grid paper where you, you can see if, there's certain sections on it that might have kind of like wavy lines and this indicates the metamorphopsia and corresponds to area of the retina that have worsening or, or have present uh, macular degeneration. So we say if it gets, if it gets worse, if you notice sudden changes, if you have a, an area that's disappeared, otherwise known as scotoma, um, then come right in because we have to check that out. So actually, yeah, attending regular eye exams, uh, but again, sun, sun exposure, that's a, a big one good sunglasses with a, uh, even a backside anti-glare. If you're using sunglasses that are kind of like flat front, like wayfarers, you know, a fair amount of sun can actually reflect off the back of the lens back into your eyeball. So if you have some sunglasses with a bit of wrap to them, or even the fit overs, the ones like my mom wears, so I love those ones are the best. They block the, the sun from the sides. They also block some wind, which kind of helps with dry eye in some cases too. Um, so really protecting the eyes from, from the sun, even from the sides. Uh, I've, I've got patients who believe it or not, don't like to wear sunglasses because it makes them look, they, they think, Oh, well, I don't want to look like I think of a movie star or something like that. You know, I, I practice in, in small, uh, in a small community. And I guess it's, maybe that's a, that's a thing that the, maybe the, the optical industry is so associated with like kind of like retail and, you know, style, but they're, <laughs> they're, their healthcare devices wear it, you know, it's, it's for your health too. So don't be afraid to wear sunglasses pretty consistently. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, we're touching into some of the treatments and stuff there too. Right. So there's a, you know, there's a phrase that I've heard before that uh, comes to mind when you're describing, you know, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Right. So we think, Oh, I have this strong family history. I, I have the, the genes for it, whether it's, whether it's macular degeneration or Alzheimer's or a number of uh, age-related diseases, we'll call them. Um, and it's that the genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger, right? So, the, you know, you might start off with a bit of that, you know, uh, a poor hand, so to speak, but there are a lot of modifiable elements of your environment, whether it's diet, sleep. I didn't touch on sleep, but I'm sure, I think, I mean, it's just, that's everything, right? It's uh, every aspect of health, right? When you talk about sleep and, and diet and, um, stress and, you know, and then the eyes, but in particular, you know, protecting them from the sunlight and some of these things, oh, um, sure. yeah. it, it, you know, 
and then I think it's a common thread. I mean, a lot along or among a lot of these age related diseases, right. That, um, the reason a lot of them are age related is because it's accumulation of damage over time or a breakdown of the, uh, sorry, the protective mechanisms over time. Right. So, but yeah, now exactly. you, touched, you, yeah. you know, like every, like you said, like it's the, we come with a, with a, with a hand of cards, you know, and what's kind of interesting too, you mentioned that it's the environment that pulls the trigger. Right. But we don't even know at the, with macular degeneration, we don't know, is it once these genes are activated, is that just like, is the onset then reversible? Sometimes, um, for example, in myopia development, we know that, um, that play outside can decrease the, um, the risk of onset, but once, once the genes turn on playing out, you could play outside all you want and the genes don't turn back off. You, you have myopia now and, and it can continue and playing outside isn't protective, but it is protective against the onset. So it's kind of interesting how sometimes the environment can play a role in the onset, but also in the progression. I think in, in the, what we're talking about here, it probably plays a role in both, but it's, it's, uh, it's also kind of like how you mentioned, well, our, in terms of these age-related diseases, it's changes also in the extracellular environment in the, in the matrix around this, the scaffolding around cells changes, and that can actually change which genes are activated and which, which genes uh, lend itself to whatever phenotype the cell has, you know, when we're, when we're an embryo, all the, all the differentiation that occurs is thanks to the environment that the cell is in. And those genes, some genes get shut off, some genes get turned on and it should stay like that. But if we, if we expose ourselves on a chronic level to different environments that are kind of unanticipated by that cell, it can activate different genes, you know, and this is one of the things that might be happening in when things go to the wet form in macular degeneration as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's, I mean, you're touching in basically the whole domain of epigenetics here, right? And right. you have your, your DNA, your, you know, that's hard coded. That's, that's not really going to change. Although CRISPR is, is starting to do that. That's a different, uh, a different topic, but um, they basically have these on off switches, right? And, and uh, they might be more um, prone to being on or off, uh, but the environment can sometimes alter these. So, but going into, you talked uh, some of the treatment options uh, or, progression what treatment options currently exist for patients who have um either the dry form or we'll simplify it called the dry form and the wet form of amd what treatment options are out there okay let's start with um with the dry form so general in clinic we always wanted to we want to follow the guidelines we we do what other practitioners are doing and uh often don't don't get into some of like the um, uh, alternatives, I guess you could say. Uh, in general, the go-to recommendation or treatment is using supplements based on the uh, age-related eye disease study, this well, the second one, which uh, the first one gave uh, participants, these are, this was a big, big study funded by the National Eye Institute. And uh, it's really, it's, it was about 10 years ago and it's still the main study that that guides our treatment, although there's been more research come out since then, but it's not as statistically robust. Anyway, so we usually go with these AREDS uh, supplements, which consist of vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, zinc, copper, and some of these macular pigments got lutein and zeaxanthin. Those are both, uh, both uh, extracted from marigold plants. So... We, uh, we usually recommend those. There's some indication that the concentration of the zinc, which is 80 milligrams in these supplements, in this formula, might be a little bit high for some people because, of course, we're, like we said, we're all different. Some people might have different tolerances and sensitivities to elements. And it turns out that there's something like one out of five people who who has a who does worse when you put them on these on these compared to a placebo because they have a sensitivity to zinc. There's been also this same the A-Red uh, second study also 
compared the effect of 25 milligrams zinc and 80 milligrams, and they found that it didn't have any big impact. So prescribing 80 milligrams zinc to people doesn't seem to be totally necessary, especially now that it's been found to not really do much more than 25 milligrams. And also it might be a higher risk for some people. So it's not really I wonder if there's a test. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump oh. I wonder if there's a test for that. Like it that if you there is. I don't know if you've heard of that. Is there yeah it's for there testing is. your zinc zinc sensitivity to know, okay, hey, yeah, I'm I'm in the four out of five, so I'm good to go ahead and take this formulation, or no, I'm in the one out of five, so maybe I need a non-zinc formula. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the test is vital risk. They also have another test called macular risk, which is more for family members to see if they're at risk of macular degeneration too, which debatable whether that's, you know, maybe creating worry or not, because sometimes you can have the genes, but like we said, you might not get the disease. So I don't usually go with the macular risk one. And plus it's, it's pretty expensive for family members to get done too, but I usually will do the, I'll, I'll talk about the vital risk one because I don't want to be harming anyone, giving them a supplement that's actually going to make their condition worse. So yeah, there's, um, but if you look on the, the National Alliance 2 website, they don't recommend doing this. There's, it's a little bit of controversial uh, subject matter. And it's a real rabbit hole actually going down the, the zinc path or zinc discussion. Uh, that could be a whole episode um, or several on its own. But okay. I, I can to zinc or not to zinc, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I, um, I offer it. Not everyone goes for it, but I usually advise people that they've, uh, you know, that they they have a one out of five, one out of six ish kind of chance that it might make things worse. But you know, in healthcare, we we often studies are are um, based on averages, of course, you know, and it's getting the most bang for your buck getting, you know, we're going to start with a therapy that's, uh, that's, that's going to be effective on average. Now, the problem is, I just don't know if the person sitting in my chair is average or not. Are they one of these one out of six, one out of five? Uh, I forget the exact percentage, but it's, it's around 15 to 20%. So are they one of these people who sensitive to zinc or not? And in terms of uh, bioethics and healthcare philosophy, am I, treating individuals or treating the average the average is more statistically robust like on average if i prescribe this medication this study says it's going to it's going to decrease their progression by 25% but this other smaller study that isn't part of like a meta analysis or anything also suggests that uh, that the zinc is is the main player causing some people to have a worse result. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate with, with this discussion because um, there are some people who, who recommend this and some people who don't. I happen to be someone who, who does recommend it. Um, okay, so that's kind of like a real bit of a tangent with zinc and uh, the AREDS medications or AREDS supplements. When people go to the pharmacy, by the way, too, there's, there's other like formulas too. Um, debatable whether like you know i don't really even know them all but i would stick with the areds ones if that's what we're we're relying on the science the evidence there's um at their vitalux and preservation but there are some others like we said if you happen to be one of the zinc sensitive people there's others out that have a lower uh, concentration of zinc also there's other studies that show this new isomer of zeaxanthin uh known as mesozeaxanthin is super important and these areds uh, formulas don't have them have any mesozeaxanthin in it there's other brands that do have it but they're hard to come by they're from smaller suppliers and they're competing with the real real big guys which um base their formula on this decade-old study again so it's it's a space it's kind of a, an evolving space and most uh primary eye care um clinicians will be pretty well versed and have they'll have their recommendation but uh from me i usually i would go with the the uh the lower zinc one and the triple carotenoid one with the lutein zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin i would go with that one unless i've taken the vital risk test and i know that the higher zinc concentration is fine with me if if that's fine with me i would go with with the original formulation with the addition of mesozeaxanthin. There you go. 
All right. So this, so this, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Um, I like how you talked about, you know, is the patient in your chair average? There's a book I read on that not long ago called the end of average. And, mm-hmm. um, one, there's a story in that. Have you read that book? No, I haven't, but no, it's no. something that I think about a lot. Cause it's, you know, like with more information, we, we can individualize treatments, right? There was a story in there about, you know, I had to try to remember it, but it was, uh, you know, it was a contest to try and find the average American woman, right? And they described, you know, the average American woman was whatever, this BMI and this height and this whatever, whatever, whatever. And it was such a challenge to actually find the average American woman, right? Because it's, you know, uh, everybody's on whatever side of that average to make the average, but then, you know, that average didn't really exist, right? It was just kind of a funny yeah. story, but the, the, yeah, the book was actually quite interesting. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, wet AMD then. So, um, we've talked uh, at length about treatment, dry AMD, looking at that ARIDS formulation. Um, and I think it's also important to tell people, you know, you might go to the pharmacy and you might see all kinds of other, oh, ocular health things and, uh, or formulations. This is, a. um, I don't want to say it's a money-making space. There, I mean, AMD is is quite prevalent uh, among people over, let's say, over age sixty-five, um, compared to other other conditions, I guess. And the what's called nutraceutical industry, I guess, is, to my understanding, is not that heavily regulated. So um, other, you know, companies could say, "Hey, I could make uh, just." you know, put a formulation together and I can say that uh, old A-Reds wasn't that good because it was missing whatever, B vitamins, and you should take a whole bunch of B vitamins also, so we're going to make our own formulation and and, and sell that. Yeah, exactly. So I think so I think that, you know, sticking to uh, the science is probably a good call when it comes to your vision. So on that note, let's go to what AMD. What uh, treatments out there, if someone gets diagnosed with what AMD, what are some of you don't have to, you know do a deep dive, but what are the go-to treatment options for patients? Well, yeah, basically, like, if we know that there's bleeding in the eye, there's probably new blood vessels growing in there, and they're kind of fragile. They spring a few leaks, and that makes the situation a lot worse. So we have to get rid of those. And luckily, there is a way to do that. Uh, it's sometimes scary for patients to hear that you have to inject a drug into the eye. They think of a needle going at your eye, and it's scary. And I usually try and you know, really, I don't even entertain that a whole lot because it's just, you know, like, you know, no, it's not that scary and you have to do it. And you look up in that way and they, you know, like put the needle there and it's done. That's, it's like getting a needle anytime. It's not fun, but you, you just, you have to do it. Um, and the, but the, the purpose of injecting it in there is because the, uh, it means it's mechanism of action is at the site of, of where this new blood vessel is growing from originating usually from the choroid and then growing into the, the retina. And for whatever reason, either the retina's ability to suppress uh, new blood vessel growth has been compromised or just the damage to the um, to these cells from AMD has upregulated the genes to grow new blood vessels. So we can call this uh, vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF, or this is the, the, the gene that it gets activated. Uh, causing the angiogenesis or neovascularization, we call it. Uh, in other parts of the body, this is probably a, a good thing. It must be because otherwise we wouldn't have the genetic propensity to do it. Um, in the eye, we kind of want things a bit avascular, especially at the macula, because you don't want new blood vessels at any time, even in front of your macula, because that's in your line of sight. And you'll see kind of like shadows in your vision if there's a blood vessel growing in front of your macula. Uh at the macula, there's uh, the blood supply diffuses from the choroid into the macula. And if we have these drusen in the way, it might inhibit oxygen uh, diffusion. And then this VEGF gene, if it upregulates, it'll start producing mRNA that, that uh, gather uh, amino acids and creates a chemical cascade which new blood vessels follow and grow into that area to bring more oxygen. It sounds like a good idea, like I said, in other tissues, but in the eye, they seem to always leak. So if you, if there was a way to inject something in there that would, would kind of like turn the gene off, that would be great. I don't think we have that. I believe they all act by um, adhering as an antisense sequence to the mRNA, but in, in 
one way or another, they block the the path. They they interrupt that signal, and then you don't have the new blood vessels growing anyway. I do like to kind of give give a general synopsis of the purpose of why something has to get injected in there and what's happening with the uh, with this bleeding. And it's what's kind of interesting is it's not completely clear if it is a um, a signal cascade that is stimulated by this oxygen oxygen deprivation or if it's failure of the uh, endogenous receptors, they're in the retina, there's pre-existing little receptors that do actually soak up and quench the mRNA from VEGF. But maybe from the damage that's occurring in uh, AMD that these receptors get compromised, damaged and stop working. Um, But in general, we kind of want a uh, a non-VEGF environment in the eye. And it kind of lends itself back to that discussion. We're saying like the, the extracellular environment of a cell determines how that cell functions. And um, in, in normal conditions, the extracellular environment of the cell should predispose for that cell to not have activity of the VEGF gene. Or if it does, that there is a mechanism in place to soak up the gene product of it. And yeah, whatever case, uh, whatever mechanism it might be, whether it be um, the receptors are damaged that we have pre-existing, or if we just upregulated the VEGF gene, AMD causes one or the other or both, and we have to inject medicine into the eye to soak up that uh, VEGF gene product. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. Like I know you're trying to explain this, trying to you know border on. <laughs> Uh, explaining for patients and for for clinicians. There's a lot of clinicians that don't necessarily fully understand um, the science. I mean, it's not to knock clinicians. Of course, they're they're quite knowledgeable. But when you start talking about gene upregulation and things like this, um, if you don't have a research background, sometimes it's um, difficult to fully, um, I don't say appreciate, but understand, I guess, right? And <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to, it, 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 it's trying to, yeah, to just, walk a fine line there, right? But no, I think yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but in essence, right? Like you, you touched on this in that when uh, tissues elsewhere in the body are um, damaged or starved of oxygen, a body's natural response is saying, "Okay, let's. We need to oxygenate these tissues. We need to get nutrients there." let's create some new blood vessels, even if they're a bit leaky, no problem that can get soaked up in the muscles and and whatnot. Right. But in the eye, it just doesn't work so nicely because as those blood vessels leak, then they damage the very sensitive neurosensory retina and uh, all hell breaks loose. Right. So the idea is let's do something, let's inject something in the eye. I should make it oversimplifying it. There are specific medications to inject to, uh, mitigate this, right? So you're touching on the science, which is certainly interesting for people to understand the, the the mechanism of action. Because this goes back to what you were saying before. You've dealt with a lot of patients who are not satisfied just to get that simple answer, like I just gave. <laughs> they want to know. They want to understand a little bit more, right? So um, now, yeah, exactly. if you, yeah. So if you have a patient, okay. So let's say you have a patient that. Uh, not a patient. I'm an individual. I'm listening to this. I'm saying, Hey, my, you know, my grandmother or my father had macular degeneration. I'm, you know, whatever I'm in my forties and I want to make sure that I don't get that. I've, uh, maybe I have the gene for it or not, but, uh, you've told me now that, you know, when genes, uh, load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Okay. So what can I do? Um, what are the, let's call them low risk high reward, um, activities, supplements, whatever, um, sunglasses, what, what, what are the measures that I can take as, as a, someone in my forties or fifties who might be at high risk, who does not want to develop this condition? What are the modifiable actions I can take? Right. Well, it's, a, I, I think it would still be a lot of the same things we discussed before, uh, the healthy diet, the air quality, not smoking, don't look at the sun. <laughs> you know, that's an obvious one, but <laughs> I've seen it a couple of times. But um, now, wait, yeah. you said smoking. Is that because we are in a country where cannabis is now illegal? And I think it's 
going that direction just about everywhere. Do you know if there's much out there in the way of um, cannabis smoking? If it's the same, I, I guess there's, the studies have been much more robust on nicotine, right, cigarettes. But um, I'm just wondering if you've heard of anything out there in terms of smoking cannabis and AMD risk. That's a great question. And I don't really know, to be honest. I think um, like the smoke itself can irritate the eye. Like, the, you know, the, um, like in terms of the ocular surface, you can have kind of dry eye symptoms, even just from the, from the smoke. If you're not in a well-ventilated area, I, I, I would imagine it's, it does cause some um, oxidative stress and irritation. I, but I, I don't know specifically. That's a, it's a great question. And I think I have been asked that, um, you know, people say kind of coy, like smoking what, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, I, it, it, I, it's, I just sent a, uh, uh, so I have Bruno's a friend of mine who co-hosts a lot of these episodes. I actually sent him a link to a clinical trial I came across this morning, um, for, well, the condition I have called retinitis pigmentosa and they're evaluating the effects of cannabis on, um, I want to say it was on visual acuity, uh, don't quote me on that, but in people with retinitis pigmentosa or how, how vision changes when, you know, under the influence of cannabis. So, uh, I don't know, maybe there's something out there for AMD as well, but, uh, hmm. I digress. I'll let you get back Could to be. the science. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the science. I don't know if we can consider this back to the, the science for the next, I, I guess in this category, we could say the blue light, uh, blocking lenses. This is a topic that some people might be interested in. And, uh, some people say it's not, uh, you know, scientifically vetted or not. And, uh, probably it's true on average, if you give everybody blue light blocking uh, glasses to treat something, you know, like computer vision syndrome or something like that, on average, it's not going to have much benefit at all because the average person, uh, just doesn't benefit from that. But depending on what patient it is, like we're all different. Some people do have more sensitivity to, to the, uh, harsh wavelengths of light and even fluorescent lights too. Sometimes if you hold a certain, like a coating on top of someone's glasses in the clinic, they're like, Oh wow. That like, that's definitely for me, that's going to make a big difference. Uh, you know, some people, if they see me wearing like a really ugly shirt, they, they get a headache, you know, and that, that happens from time to time. <laughs> so I got a few ugly shirts, you know, <laughs> So the ugly shirts at Christmas time, right? So yeah, ugly shirt exactly. So yeah. we're all a little go. bit different, you know. So Steve, stop wearing ugly shirts. For all the clinicians <laughs> out there listening to this, make sure you wear a nice shirt when you're seeing your patients. There you go. <laughs> yeah, or you know, you know like you uh, especially for your post-concussion patients, they really don't like some of those ugly shirts. But uh, I consider <laughs> it part of the test, you know. Um <laughs> but <laughs> the uh, the blue light blocking glasses. You know, the, these do block some of the light from passing through. And it is kind of cool technology. I know, like, when people walk into an optical, they're, they're prepared for a real kind of retail experience and um, forget that there's a fair amount of technology into these things, too. It's really analogous to noise-canceling headphones. You know, like, we all know that's pretty cool. You know, you can cancel noises out of your, out of your um, headphone so that you can hear the ones that you want. Like the same kind of technology works in these glasses. Whenever you put coatings on them, the peaks and troughs of the wavelengths are scattered in a way that they cancel each other out so that only certain ones pass through. And there's of course, some research into the effects of blue light on the, on the eye. And these are um, some of the harsher wavelengths that might over time have some cumulative damage to them. We're talking over like long periods of time. And the amount that you get from digital devices really is very low and probably not, not a big issue for most people in terms of retinal health. Oh, it's, it's, it's not an issue in terms of retinal health um, in my mind. But a lot of the marketing is, uh, do you use a digital device? You should have these glasses. And this is something, you know, we can't control the marketing from some of these companies that you see on Instagram and social media um, targeting people who who might have digital eye strain and saying that if you wear these glasses, that it's going to help that I, I, you know, again, it might help some people, but in the clinic, I, I don't want to recommend that something that isn't evidence-based or along scientific guidelines. However, in terms of, um, uh, blue light from the sun, like the major source is the sun. I would always recommend wearing sunglasses. They're going to work even better. They're going to be the best choice, but, 
you know, when we're in the house, you know, doing a bit of work around the yard, sometimes we forget to put our sunglasses on, at least if your glasses have some, some blue light blocking properties to them, it, it may provide some protection, uh, still inferior to the sunglasses, but it's probably better than nothing. So, okay. So sunglasses or eye protection is one, call it very low risk, potentially rewarding, but you know, you're not going to be worse off for having done it. Anything else that comes to mind? Uh, let's maybe touch like on supplementation, for example. Um, you know, do you think it would be beneficial to somebody in this case who might be at risk based on their genetics for developing a take any kind of supplementation? Maybe it's water soluble supplements uh, or or something that would be low risk to um, pre- you know prevent the onset of the disease. Yeah, well, this is interesting. The ARID study, these these major studies that really define our guidelines, um, they studied the ability of of these supplements to um, prevent the onset of disease and concluded that they they could not. There was no evidence that uh, that the supplements decrease the risk of onset. However, a positive evidence doesn't mean that something isn't possible. It just means we don't have evidence for it. So we do lack the evidence to make the uh, recommendation on on taking these things to prevent onset. However, I, I feel like there is a biological plausibility and a dose-response relationship that we really have not ca- uh, characterized in any way yet at all that might be at play. Like th- this is a study where there's you know there's literally like only one one dose against a placebo. We don't know what the what the long. We, you know, in any pharmaceutical uh, and, and toxicology experimentation, usually there's a range over a log scale of different doses where you characterize the, the um, with, with an animal, you know, like the lethal concentration and then the LC50 and these different uh, figures. You know, here's something where we've, the study has been done in, in people, it kind of a shotgun approach, just like, let's try this, these molecules, let's try these elements, uh, put them in there. Let's narrow it down. This seems to work, but we really, yeah, the, the dose response relationship is not characterized. The duration of that preventative study, it was not a lifetime long. So, you know, a lot of people will say there's nothing you can do. There's no study, but again, the, the lack of the study is kind of, um, it, it doesn't, uh, it, I don't feel like it should end there. Uh, it's that you can imagine how expensive and difficult it would be to to study the full dose uh, response relationship with thousands of people over decades. You know, I don't know if we're going to get that. So, what do we do? Well, if it was me, you know, if 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 I had a risk of uh, macular degeneration, which I do actually, <laughs> it's in my family. Um, I would uh, I would consider the lutein and zeaxanthin supplements like you can even get from jameson like at shoppers and lawton's and your local pharmacy just just supplements of lutein zeaxanthin these are the ones that are from marigold plants but again with the supplements you have to be careful like look the the way that it's extracted um was it extracted in hexane did they do a complete solvent exchange is it toxic to you i don't know it's hard to recommend you know even with fish oil, um, fish oil, the ARID studies really didn't show that fish oil was that beneficial, but there's a good chance that omega-3 fish oil is beneficial. Um, and we, we know it's, it's good for other, other systems as well. But again, where is the omega-3 sourced from? Is it from big carnivorous fish that biomagnify uh, toxins in the food chain? Or is it from the little krill? You know, so we have to be we have to be pretty cognizant of the source and uh, do our due diligence and research to make sure that it's safe that we're not taking something that might be maybe the cheaper one on the shelf but uh, exposing ourselves to risk because they used a different completely different extraction method. So, you know, I'm I'm crazy. I would actually grow marigolds and and try and uh, extract it myself. But don't do that. That's that's like crazy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think um, I think listening to podcasts like this, going out, doing a, a bit of uh, you know deep dive into the literature, go through 
through the published uh, peer-reviewed literature and and you know talk to your eye doctor talk to the uh to the doctors uh your ophthalmologist your optometrist your your family doctor as well and gather as much information as possible so do you think that um if you know if i was to tell if i was in your shoes and to tell a patient listen there's a lot of possibilities something probably works we're still trying to iron out you know, the specifics, um, this is not going to be a very fulfilling answer, but you should probably quit smoking. Yes. Everything just in case, um, (laughs) you should, you know, get plenty of sleep, uh, have a healthy diet, low stress life. Like the, the real basic, you know, aspects of healthy living, would you say that, you know, can easily account for, uh, you know, I'll call it a large percentage of, risk reduction and that maybe some of these other uh, approaches whether blue blocking lenses or or sunglasses or uh you know supplementing with lutein zeaxanthin <laughs> extracting from your own plants that you grow <laughs> and we're still talking about lutein zeaxanthin uh, is there is there you know would you say that's just a general healthy lifestyle even if that's a very unfulfilling type of prescription would um be a I don't want to call it a catch-all, but a, a pretty good baseline for people. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, like, again, going back to the etymology, age-related macular degeneration, you know, like anything that accelerates aging, just, you know, let's avoid that if we can. Smoking, you know, it's it, it, it ages the tissues. Um, we all know that. So, yeah, the healthy lifestyle, um, people who, who might be experiencing obesity, well, it's, you know, it, it, again, yeah, for sure they've been told before and it's not a very satisfying prescription or recommendation, but you know, we have to, we have to work on the diet and exercise. Uh, of course. Yeah. And people who smoke, I'm sure they've been told many times, but that's, it comes down to that. You know, you're, you're totally right. No, well, listen, I think this is probably a good spot to wrap up. Um, I appreciate you joining uh again and giving your your time and i certainly look forward to having you on to share your experience with the audience is there anything else that you wanted to bring up before we wrap it up uh no i think that was that was great i really appreciate uh the discussion this is a really tough topic you know it's uh there's a lot of science there's a lot of unknowns but there are a lot of professionals out there who are who are dedicated to this area of work and um I think uh, we we didn't get into some areas of say like uh, low vision uh, uh, tools. There's great organizations that your doctor can um, can set you up with, and your doctor may refer you to somebody who's more specialized in some of those magnification tools and so on. So I would always encourage people keep on keep on digging, keep on working at it, and keep on looking up. Um, and yeah, thanks again, Sean. This is uh, always a pleasure talking with you. And looking forward to the next one. Great. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Okay. Thanks. You too.